welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. So as you can see uh, from the screens, today we are thinking about sex, swearing, adultery and divorce. And... Um, we're also going to touch on porn because I thought, you know, whilst you're on to a good thing, why not? So we, we, if there are any um, children present, there will be one or two. Uh, it's not going to be wild. Don't sort of get your hopes up. But there's be one or two 18 certificate moments. And if it, it, won't, it won't be inappropriate, but we are going to talk about some delicate things. So if you've got children present, you want to take them out, do feel free. There's absolutely... Uh, no problem with doing that right now. This is the sixth in our Way of the King series, walking through the radical teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we've said throughout that if the heart of the Bible is the Gospels, the heart of Christ's teaching is the Sermon on the Mount. And as we get right to the heart of what Jesus teaches, we find that it is profoundly relevant and profoundly challenging. I've often uh, reflected as we've gone through this series on those words from Mark Twain. It's not the parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do. And our problem today is, is going to be that Jesus is at his clearest and simplest, and we are going to have to try and get our heads around what that means for each of us in our lives. Uh, it's going to be challenging. I, I want a, a disclaimer at the start. Uh, by the way, if, if this is your first Sunday at Emmaus, I'm so sorry. Uh, uh, we, we normally, uh, you know, the, there's normally some humor. I have removed all humor from this talk. Uh, and, uh, we, we, you know, sometimes you just have to teach them some really challenging things. And that's what we're going to do uh, today. I, don't, I can't remember who's speaking next week, but I guarantee it'll be full of froth and hilarity. Uh, but not this week. Uh, look on this more as a bowl of porridge. Um, terribly good for you, not that exciting. This is not a dirty burger with fries from five guys, I'm afraid, uh, today. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 27 to 37. Um, you remember Jesus has just been speaking about um, murder, he, and he's saying that actually hatred is an expression of murder, and uh, then continuing in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. If uh, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I am going to come on to this. We are going to talk about it. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths that you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, 
either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. First, let's be clear what Jesus is doing here. He is preaching on the Ten Commandments. In this section, in the Sermon on the Mount, he is working through the Ten Commandments and he's applying them. So last time he was talking about the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not kill. And he's, he's looking at the Pharisees who go, who've turned the Ten Commandments into a checklist. They've gone, well, I haven't killed anyone, mate. I'm all right. You know, and Jesus is going, yeah, but your heart is filthy. It's full of hatred. It, it's full of bitterness and resentment. It's just as bad. And now he's coming on to the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And again, the Pharisees are going, oh, well, I've been, I've been faithful to my wife, you know, and all the rest. And he's going, yeah, but you're full of lust. And he's saying, if, if you're looking at someone lustfully, it's just as bad. So all the time what Jesus is doing is taking this outward checklist of righteousness and applying it to the heart. He's saying holiness is something that comes from within. And, uh, you know, we get this in the culture a great deal. I, I'm sure you, like me, have often heard people say things like, I'm not a bad person. You know, I, 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 I don't abuse children. I give to comic relief, whatever it is. But if Jesus came into the room, he might look them in the eyes with great love, I should add, and say to them, that's all very well, but have you lusted? Have you hated? Have you lied? Have you always been true to your word? And those people might go, mate, you're getting a little bit heavy here. But Jesus is challenging the heart and not just the outward appearance of righteousness. Jesus calls us to holiness. And we live in a culture that is broken and dirty. There are some Christians, and there were many Christians like this a generation ago, who said, well, the way to be holy is to flee the world. You mustn't go to the cinema. You know, they might be saying you mustn't be online. You know, you, you, you've just got to separate yourself. <clears throat> And we don't think that. We think that holiness is a heart thing and therefore it is outworked in the context of the culture. We want to be in the world but different from it. But there is a slight danger that we are so engaged with the culture that we subtly absorb its values. Almost every time you go to the cinema, you will probably absorb a moment, at least one, it may be the entire film, that normalizes and even glamorizes sexual unfaithfulness and the breaking of promises. And the danger is we just sort of, it affects us slowly as standards start to slip. I'm not saying don't go to the movie, but I'm saying don't leave your discernment at the door because there's a battle going on here for our hearts, for holiness in our hearts. I want you as well to understand the tone of this passage, the tone and the tenor of Jesus. We must understand he was not an English gentleman. 
uh, where, you know, it's the art of understatement, you know. Mm, I, I'm in a little bit of pain. My leg has fallen off. He, he's not like that. He is a Middle Eastern man. And I was going to say a Middle Eastern man of the first century, but it's irrelevant. It's what Middle Eastern men are still like today. It's big. It's exaggeration. It's in your face. It's passionate. It's committed. It's on fire. It's challenging. It's, it's big-hearted culture. And so Jesus is doing it here. Pull out your eye. Cut off your hand. Anything beyond a yes or a no comes from the devil. Hear, hear the culture of Jesus here. And you know this is true because I'm looking around the room. There's not many one-eyed, one-handed people. And if there was, I'd congratulate you that you've only sinned once or maybe twice. Some of us are going, well, if I take this literally, I've only got two hands and two eyes. That won't even get me to lunchtime, mate. <laughs> yeah, do you understand? We can't be fundamentalists with the text. You've got to understand the culture. I have a friend who... Um, we used to go to a retreat centre down in Ashford, near, in, in, in Kent. And in one of the dormitories, someone had done a, a painting of Jesus... Um, because it was a Christian retreat centre, it's sort of what you hang on the wall. And it was a terrible picture. But the one thing they'd got right is they'd managed to get his eyes looking straight out of the frame. And as you know, that means that the eyes follow you around the room. And the eyes are look, right? So anywhere you were in this funny little dormitory, Jesus was staring at you. It's quite disconcerting. And uh, a peculiar-looking Jesus as well. And and we went one time, my friend Steve Howarth, we came in, you know, you go in, there's bunk beds, you're putting your bag on, you're getting out your sleeping bag. Steve got out uh, literally an a, a, a oil painting kit. I was like, what are you doing? And he, without explanation, got up and he, he moved one of Jesus' eyes to point out sideways. <laughs> he said, it's been bugging me for years, I can't handle Jesus staring at me any longer. <laughs> And to this day, I just want to apologize to Elm Tree Farm in Ashford and Kent. You may well have a squinting Jesus on your wall. And it's Steve Howarth uh, that did it. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the direct gaze of Jesus can be quite challenging at times, can't it? It can be disconcerting. He challenges us to be people of heart integrity in our attitudes, in our imagination, in our words, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. I'm going to talk about divorce in just a second, but let me say this. On the 19th of February last year, those 110 Nigerian girls were kidnapped by Boko Haram. And uh, Hassan John, who was with us two weeks ago, was the journalist who broke the story to the world in the end. Michelle Obama got on board, but one of those girls is still in captivity today, over a year later, a year and five days later. And as you may know, her name is Leah Sharibu. And uh, we're protesting here. I think that's Scott Bauer, actually, bottom uh, corner there of the picture. We don't want the world to forget the reason Leah hasn't been re released is that she is refusing to convert to Islam. She is a follower of Jesus, and she's saying, I will not back down on the promises I've made to Jesus. A teenage girl, over a year in captivity, all she's got to do is just tell a little white lie. 
And there's probably something within us that goes, oh, Leah, darling, just say what they want to say. Just, you know, do, say your prayer. You can recant later. We'll all get together and sing Amazing Grace together. We'll pray for you. You can cry, and it's fine. Jesus will forgive you. And yet there's something else in us that knows that she's getting right to the very heart of Christian discipleship. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. I will be a woman of my word. My yes will be yes. My no will be no. And when I speak something, I will be faithful to it. And that's what Jesus is calling us to here. God calls us to be people of our world in a culture in which people have prenuptial agreements before marriages. <laughs> Business deals that used to be sealed with a handshake now have an army of lawyers to try and second guess every possible loophole. Fewer and fewer medical students take the Hippocratic Oath that's 2,300 years old. It's easy, closer to home perhaps, to lie and justify it, to allow our language to become filthy, to break promises that hurt other people. Maybe you're here and you've been hurt by the broken promises of others. And if you go around saying, look, I've not been unfaithful to my husband or wife, or I'm not married, so I haven't committed adultery, but you are hooked on pornography, or you're looking at others lustfully, Jesus says, don't kid yourself. You want to get your oil kid out and make Jesus squint right now, aren't you? I know I am. The gaze of Jesus. Let's just quickly think about porn for a second. And obviously, this passage, Jesus talks about lust. And uh, we, we, the stats tell us, and as a working pastor, I know this is the reality that in our culture and even this church, this is a, a real struggle for many people. Uh, and so I'd be remiss not to talk about it. This is not a talk about pornography, so it's going to be very, very quick. Forgive me, but let's at least mention it. What's wrong with porn? Well, firstly, it objectifies people and it objectifies sex. It turns the whole thing into an unrelational animal act and it removes love and commitment from sex. Sex is one of God's greatest ideas. It is the beautiful expression of lifetime commitment to another person. And, and there's an entire book of the Bible that celebrates sex and even uses it as a picture of relationship with God. We do not have a low view of sex. We have too high a view of sex for our culture that wants to turn it in just to a, into a meaningless animal act, ultimately through the endemic um, problem of pornography. Secondly, pornography is just flat out fake. It is just a lie. I mean, has anyone here noticed that sex, real sex, isn't actually like that? Real people don't actually look like that? I mean, obviously my wife doesn't think that, but... Um... <laughs> That's enough, enough laughing, Sammy. That is, um... It was meant to be a slightly humorous point, but not the most hilarious thing that you've heard all day. And there's increasing evidence that the use of pornography spoils sex. I mean, even young, virile men unable to even get an erection anymore because they have so, like, 
uh, fill their imagination. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. That no human being can ever really quite live up to the reality. Uh, I could go on. I don't want to get, you know, if you, by the way, if you brought your mother-in-law to church today, I just want to say she probably knows more than you do anyway. <laughs> Pornography is also addictive. Massively, massively addictive. All the research shows this. And so uh, people who are, con who are convicted of, uh, of, uh, of terrible pornographic crimes, uh, images of children and all sorts of things, I mean, actually, no one just starts there. What happens, and, and, and a lot of the psychiatrists talk about this, is that you have to go further and further, darker and darker, to get the hit, the reaction that you once had. And your neural pathways will realign if you keep looking at pornography around all of that. I'm not trying to put a heavy on things, but our Lord Jesus stands at the front and says to you, don't look at a woman or a man lustfully. And we've got to talk about this stuff. And then, of course, there's the whole issue of shame. There is utter grace in Jesus. There's utter freedom and hope in Jesus. We're going to pray for people at the end. But if you find yourself struggling, it might be with lust and pornography. It might be areas of broken promises or, or, or untruthfulness. It could be a whole bunch of things I've already mentioned. I want to encourage you to do three things. First, be honest with yourself. It's the first step in any 12-step program is admit it. You know, hold up your hands. I'm a sinner. I have messed up. This is a church full of sinners. There isn't a single one of us, certainly me included, who, who's getting it all right. We are a bunch of messed up people. Let's have a culture where it's easy and possible to say, I've sinned. But let's begin by admitting it to ourselves, being honest about our weaknesses and our struggles. Secondly, let's be honest with God. Let's admit it to God. Psalm 51 is such a beautiful example. David has sinned at an extreme level, arranging murder, uh, adultery, fathering an illegitimate child. And eventually he realizes he's sinned and, and he writes this stunning psalm of repentance, creating me a clean heart and renewing me a right spirit. Cast me not away from your presence. You know, and so admit to God. And then finally, after you admitted yourself, admitted to God, you need to, and this is probably the most challenging for some of us, admit it to someone else. 1 John 1 verse 9 says um, to us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But we are called not just to confess vertically, but horizontally to one another. And especially if there's some area of systematic struggle or addiction in your life, you will need someone else who you trust, who you respect to help walk you through to freedom. It won't be enough just to try hard and be terribly spiritual. It may be some of us need counseling or to think about joining a recovery group. But there is hope. I don't want anyone to feel hopeless. Okay. Just turn to the person next to you and say, I'm so glad we've dealt with um, porn and lust, and I'm very much looking forward to talking about divorce. Go. Just... <laughs>
Okay. So Jesus says this very clear, uh, unambiguous thing. He says that the only grounds for divorce is sexual unfaithfulness, is adultery. And um, I know that some of you are immediately thinking, well, um, what about, for example, systematic physical abuse? There was a case in, our, in the news last week of a 22-year-old man who had been so systematically, uh, emotionally, psychologically, and physically abused by his girlfriend, the mother of his child, that the, the, the police said he was five days from death when they finally found him. Uh, she was controlling what he wore, what he didn't eat. She was hitting him with glass bottles when he was asleep at night. And he, he, he did these interviews, you may have read them, just talking about how you even get into that state. Now, I don't know, as far as I know, there was no sexual unfaithfulness there. So is Jesus saying, well, they should have stayed married? Clearly not. I mean, clearly the guy's about to die. So suddenly we start to ask all sorts of questions, and I'm aware that if I was to say, I'm not going to do this, but if you've been divorced, and there are many divorced people in this church, uh, or, or your parents were divorced, or a close family member's been divorced, almost everyone in this room would stand. This is about as close to home as it gets, and I'm nervous talking about it. I, I mean, I've really prepared because, you know, I, I could get this wrong in one of two ways. And I'm desperate not to do so. I don't want anyone to feel condemned for a failed relationship, first of all. I don't want anyone to feel trapped in an abusive or damaging marriage. I don't want anyone who is married feeling that vows are anything less than permanent, binding in sickness and in health till death us do part. So please would you hear me with grace. Some of you are going to feel that I have been too soft and some will feel that I have been too hard. <laughs> so I'm just apologizing in advance. But I am convinced that the teaching of Jesus is intrinsically wise and good for individuals, for families and for society. And so we're going to uh, take this seriously. We are in a culture where 42% of marriages uh, now end in divorce, although I should say it's improving. Uh, the divorce rates are actually going down. Uh, but we also, Guildford is one of the worst places in the country for divorce. So uh, if you're married, expect spiritual warfare, even more if you live in this area than in other areas of the country. If you are um, single or engaged and you're wanting to be married, We've got to really think about this together. It's one of the ways that we can be a prophetic people. It's also, by the way, one of the ways we can be a healing community for those who have been divorced, those who are broken, kids who've been affected by their parents' divorce. The damage is profound. I can see a Christian guy somewhere. Where are you, Christian? Christian there. Christian famously, when he was heading up the Center for Social Justice, released... Uh, a report with a particularly provocative statement that caught the front pages of the, of the news saying, you know, some kids are growing up in a man desert where, you know, they don't have a father figure at home, there's no uh, uh, male school teachers. And the truth is that we're aware that we have a crisis. There are statistics I'm not going to give you about the impact of divorce on children. 
And the reason I'm not going to is if you are divorced with children, you already are carrying this in your heart beyond anything. I don't want to make it worse. You don't need this proved to you. But this is really, really serious for society. And Christ's words are not just sort of something from the ancient past. They are prophetic to a culture like ours where divorce is everywhere. Uh, Tanya Gold, writing in The Guardian last December, captured what it's like to grow up as a child in a divorced home and what the long-term implications are on the way you think. She said this, I am the child of unhappily divorced people. It was, she, she says elsewhere in the article that sometimes her mum was so bitter that if she passed a bride, she would wind down the window and yell, don't do it, love, don't do it. She says, it was like growing up filled with emotional shrapnel. I didn't think that I would get married, although I always wanted to. I felt incapable of trust. I was love shy. I am married now, although I do not know if I will stay married. Does anyone really know if they'll survive? The fractures between us are large and they're growing, and sometimes we fill them in, sometimes we don't. Perhaps one day we will just no longer want to be married anymore. Marriage is the universal sign of being wanted and settled and loved, and nothing exposes your needs and defects like relationships. Too often, she says, you come to the most important relationship of your adult life like a child, with all of a child's needs, hopes, and fears. Jesus says that the only grounds for divorce is sexual immorality. The Greek word here is porneia, from which we get pornography. But what are we to do then with other grounds for divorce? Well, there were two mosaic, you know, Old Testament teachings that formed the view of the first century on divorce. One of them was Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, and that is the one Jesus is referring to here, Matthew 5, and also in Matthew chapter 19, where he is explicitly tested by the Pharisees around Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. That is the one uh, that talks about sexual unfaithfulness. And then there is another Old Testament passage that was equally weighty in their culture, and funnily enough, preachers rarely mention this, but this is absolutely the case, and that was Exodus 21, verses 10 and 11, which made exception for neglect and abuse as grounds for divorce. You might want to write that down, because that's a bombshell I just threw out for some of you there, Exodus 21, 10 and 11. Now let's think about these two scriptures, because Jesus was very familiar with them. First of all, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 seems to permit a man to divorce a woman, forgive the sexist language here, but we'll just go with it for a second. A man to divorce a woman, and this is the language, if you're using the NIV, a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. And so there was a, a school within Pharisaism called the Hillel School at that time who took that as what's become known as the any cause for divorce school. So they said, anything that makes my wife displeasing to me, she can burn my dinner, she can just be not as beautiful or attractive to me as she used to be, is grounds for divorce. And this really was going on and being taught by some of the religious leaders who were in the crowd testing Jesus. And so in, Ma in Matthew 19, which is the other 
bit where Jesus teaches on divorce, so we always have to twin this with Matthew 5. Jesus specifically being asked, what, are you, what is your view on the interpretation of that lax uh, uh, interpretation of uh, Deuteronomy 24? And Jesus comes back to that test with a, a resolute uh, clarity. He says, no, you cannot just divorce someone on the basis of them being displeasing to you. He cites Genesis chapter 1, and he says, just as you became one flesh through sexual union and through covenant commitment, so your union can only be broken through the breaking of the seventh commandment through adultery. So he is speaking specifically to that. In Matthew 5, it's because he's addressing the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. In Matthew chapter 19, it is because he is specifically addressing the Hillel school who thought that you could just divorce over pretty much any area of displeasure. Jesus says marriage must be honored highly. Our promises must be taken seriously. Divorce must not be taken lightly. And he is standing against a culture of quickie divorce, of cheap words, and of patriarchal chauvinism. But then there is this other passage, and uh, Exodus 21 verses 10 and 11, fascinatingly, talks about uh, the other grounds uh, being neglect in three areas. Depriving your partner of food, clothing, and love. Food, clothing, and love. Now, it is because of that scripture that the Anglican marriage vows, even to this day, talk about love, nourish, and cherish. It is a direct link to Exodus 21, 10 and 11. And the Apostle Paul cites it. It's in the back of his mind. In Ephesians 5, he talks about the relationship of Jesus with the church, and he says that Jesus loves, nourishes, and cherishes the church. It's Exodus 21. You mustn't deprive of food, clothing, and love. And this was understood at the time of Jesus. I want to suggest that when there is systematic, I'm not talking, you know, if you're talking about, you know, my husband, my wife is, has just displeased me. They haven't loved me as much as I should. They haven't, you know, been quite nice enough. And Jesus comes out and says, you are one flesh. If you just start to divorce over trivia and then you go and remarry, it's just adultery. He's as strong as you can be with that kind of quickie divorce culture. But I want to suggest to you that if there is systematic, psychological, emotional, physical, sexual abuse in a marriage, then you must think very carefully about whether that is a healthy or an appropriate context in which to remain. And you must understand that, that, that the Bible does not say you have to stay into, in that context, uh, in, in that way. And uh, I know some of you will think that I'm being too liberal there, but I do believe it is grounded in Exodus 21 as well as Deuteronomy 24. So let's uh, come into land, because we've covered a lot of ground. I would love to pray for some people. In summary, firstly, 
Jesus says that marriage is a great and a difficult thing. And uh, we shouldn't enter into its vows lightly because they are permanent and they are binding. 1 Corinthians 7, 28, Paul says this, those who marry will face many troubles in this life. You don't often see that on Instagram, do you? Come on, let's have a moment of honesty. Those of you who married here, <laughs> if you would say, mm, you know, I thought it was going to be easier than this, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life. Yeah, I, that's my experience. Come on, let's have a moment of honesty. Just raise your hands. Uh, if, if, if it's a little bit, uh, should we say, more challenging than you thought. Yes. We need to because there are parts of Hollywood that make out it's happily ever after. And the Bible says it ain't going to be like that. It is a great and a difficult thing. Don't be surprised if you have to work at your marriage, if you have to say sorry a hundred times before tea. Don't be surprised if there are seasons of disillusionment as illusionment. It is a great and a difficult thing. I also want to say, though, that singleness is a great and a difficult thing. Don't assume if you are single that uh, it, it's always easier being married. And I know that can sound like a smug marriage. Oh, it's right for you to say that. And it probably is. I know, but, but honestly, it's just being an adult is just tough. <laughs> Relationships are just difficult. Living in your own head is just hard sometimes, right? And Jesus is saying you need me. You know, the key to fulfillment whether you're married or single, and it's worth restating, Jesus was single, and he was the ultimate example. He was the one that we follow. He was the most fulfilled person ever. So don't for a single second say, unless I'm sexually doing whatever I want, I'm less than human. Jesus was fully human, and as far as we can tell from the Bible, he, he, he never had sex. So do you, don't believe the 70s myth that having sex is the, is the summation of fulfillment. It is probably if you're an animal, but you're not an animal. You're made in the image of God, and God revealed himself to you in Jesus Christ. Jesus was not married. So I want to say sorry to those of you who are single for the times where we don't honor you enough in our teaching. We don't recognize you enough. We don't create models of family that are inclusive enough. And I'm sorry about that because it is not biblical. Okay? And there are more and more people who are single in our culture, by the way. Uh, it's the normal state. Abnormal is this thing, marriage, which is why it takes a bit of work. I have a high view of marriage. Don't panic. But sometimes we're so busy doing that, we don't honor those who are not married. Divorce is married in the case of adultery, I believe, and also in the case of abuse and severe, sustained psychological or sexual neglect, which is arguably a violation of the Sixth Commandment because Jesus is linking murder with hatred. If you're in that kind of marriage, you should seek help. So in summary, if you're single, I'm sorry, we don't honor and support you enough. I want to remind you of 1 Corinthians 7 where the Apostle Paul actually advocates singleness and says you have a special ability to uh, give undivided attention to the Lord. You may not want that. Uh, but that, that is uh, an opportunity. If you're considering marriage, please don't believe the Hollywood schmaltz. Get accountable. Don't propose to her just because you had a really hot date and you'd listen to Michael Bublé. This is a bad, <laughs> this is a bad grounds for lifelong commitment. 
if you're not accountable in proposing, you're not accountable in anything. I know people who are very good at being accountable in all sorts of other things, but they propose without asking anyone's advice. That's just dumb. This is serious stuff. If you're in your first couple of years of marriage, you are laying down the culture for the future. Work hard at it. Make time for it. Get input into your relationship, please. Don't think, oh, well, we'll get that sorted later in life. You're setting the DNA right now. If you are in a broken or an abusive relationship, I want to urge you, if you're here today or listening online, seek help. Seek help. I do not believe the Bible says that you have to stay in a relationship that is profoundly damaging you. I'm not saying that covenant commitment doesn't, make, it doesn't mean anything. I'm not saying that you don't have to fight to make your marriage work and to last. I'm not saying if you occasionally have been hurt or you've gone through difficult seasons, but if you are in a profoundly damaging marriage, you must seek help. If you are engaged in sexual unfaithfulness, whether it's with another person or it's with a pornographic addiction, I want to urge you, confess. There is no freedom and no hope in your future until you do. It will get worse. Admit it to yourself. I've got a problem. Admit it to God. Apologize. And admit it to someone else. Say, I need help. And finally, if you've been married for a while, can I urge you on this long journey in the same direction to keep investing in your marriage? Practice the Beatitudes, actually, in your marriage. I know people who practice the Beatitudes in every other bit of their life except their marriage. And it is deliberate that they're linked here in Matthew 5. In fact, Chrysostom, who was a church father in the 4th century, said this, For he that is meek, that's, you know, one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek. For he that is a peacemaker, for he that is poor in spirit and merciful, how shall he cast out his wife? (laughs) He that is used to reconcile others, how shall he be at variance with her that is his own? And I want to just throw out that maybe one or two people, people here called to counseling, binding up the brokenhearted, peacemaking and reconciliation. You should expect to have conflict in your marriages, not because of your partner, but because there will be spiritual attack on the most important bit of peacemaking, reconciliation and binding up broken hearts you will ever do in your life, which is with your life partner. And so you need, to, you need to guard yourself, you need to protect yourself in that area. And don't spend yourself out there and neglect your marriage. Be a peacemaker in your home. Can I encourage you? I think we've got the marriage course just starting. You might want to think about doing it. Invest into your marriage. Sammy and I loved uh, doing the marriage course. It was so helpful to us. Spend time in the prayer room together as couples. We just did that last week and loved it. Um, practice good communication. There's been survey after survey that has discovered that one of the telltale signs that a a marriage is either heading in the right direction or the wrong direction is this. It's the simplest thing. If your language is moving towards or away from one another. And what that means is, let's just take a, a, a silly little comment. Say driving home today, Sammy says to me, isn't the sky a lovely color? I can respond in one of two ways. 
if I move away from her, I ignore it because it's just like chit-chat. Or I might go, well, obviously it's blue because there's no clouds, darling. Or, yeah, yeah, great point, yeah. Or, you know, if I do, that's moving away. Do you understand? But I can respond to it going, yeah, it really is lovely. Actually, do you know what? I can't wait for the summer. I'm so excited about our summer holiday. We've just moved towards each other. And it sounds such a simple thing, but there's been research again and again that has shown that when you allow moving away instead of moving towards to come into the way that you relate both verbally and physically, uh, you are sowing the seeds for a breakdown in your relationship. So work at those little conversations even today. Let's keep working at our marriages. Sammy and I are hitting 25 years of marriage in May. And uh, I know we were very, very, very young when we married. And, um, <laughs> but, you know, it, you have to keep building it, don't you? So for us, we're preparing to be empty nesters. We're like, what's that going to look like? For Sammy, who's been primary carer for most of that time, what's, you know, what will my identity be? without the kids needing me in the way that they have done. And so she's retraining and counselling at CWR, phenomenal course. Uh, and we've just been very intentional at, 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 at building our marriage for the next season. And it's got to be worth it. Uh, last slide, because um, we all want to be this one day. <laughs> that lovely old couple. They've had their hard times, they've had their difficult times, they've had their rows, but they've forgiven, they've made up, and now they're the old crinkly couple, still miraculously in love. Finally, if you are here and you are divorced today, I want to say to you with every fiber of my being, God does not have a plan B for your life. He only ever has a new plan A. There is always grace there is always a new start. You are equally blessed, equally loved, equally uh, um, kind of available to the Lord to be used. And you belong here, and we love you, and we do not judge you. We all have failures in our past. And so I want to say that as wholeheartedly as I can to anyone here who's been divorced, do not condemn yourself for the past, but find hope for the future. But I say it without for a second wanting to say to those of you who are in difficult marriages, it doesn't matter. Fight for your marriage. Contend for your vows. And there we have the tightrope I've struggled to walk this morning. Interestingly, God describes himself as a divorcee in Jeremiah 3 verse 8. A reluctant divorcee. So it would just be great to pray for one or two people. I'm sure I've raised lots of issues. I told you it was going to be a bowl of porridge. It's going to be pretty heavy and challenging. Uh, I don't apologize for that. This is the gaze of Jesus at times. But I wonder if for some of us there are challenges in terms of finding fresh hope in our relationships. Maybe you're single and it's hope for the future. Maybe you're married and you're struggling in your marriage. Hope for the future. For others, it's healing. You have been deeply hurt by other people's unfaithfulness. It's broken your heart. The Lord wants to heal and restore you. And finally, for some people, it's holiness. You know that you yourself have broken promises. Or you yourself have entertained lust or deception or unforgiveness 
or their areas of addiction, maybe around pornography. And so whether it is hope or healing or holiness, I believe Jesus comes to us with absolute grace, absolute love, and says, I can help you with that. Amen.